Welcome to Sound and Vision, conversations with contemporary artists and musicians about the creative process. Here's the host of Sound and Vision, Brian Alfred. Sound and Vision is sponsored by Fulcrum Coffee Roasters. Fulcrum Coffee Roasters is a place of discovery, surprise, and delight inspired by the Pacific Northwest's beauty, people, and stories. They're a Seattle-based full-service wholesale coffee roaster and retailer with over 25 years of experience. Their deeply personal relationships, collaborations, and services provided transform how customers experience and enjoy coffee. Fulcrum's three unique brands are unified in simple, earnest, and grounding principles. I've been sampling Fulcrum's coffee recently, and it's amazing. Americanas in the morning, pour-overs in the afternoon. It's really high-quality coffee, and I'm excited to have them as a supporter of the podcast. You can check out their coffee and their story at fulcrumcoffee.com. Sound and Vision is sponsored by Golden Artist Colors. Manufactured in upstate New York, an employee-owned company, Golden makes the best acrylics, oil paints, and watercolors that you can buy. You can find them in your local art store, or you can find them online at goldenpaints.com. Sound and Vision is supported by the New York Studio School, where drawing, painting, and sculpture are studied in-depth, debated energetically, and created with passion. The school's full-time programs, a two-year MFA, and a three-year certificate prioritize experimental learning and perception. Beginning in fall 2021, the Studio School welcomes artists from around the world to join its inaugural virtual certificate program. Combining the studio-centric emphasis of the school's teaching methods with an individual real-time approach to online learning, this full-time program is designed for serious artists and dedicated aspiring artists who seek to cultivate the studio skills and methods that will prepare them for a lifetime of art making. The priority application deadline is April 30th, 2021. Apply online today at nyss.org. Kimia Ferdusi Klein earned an MFA at the San Francisco Art Institute and holds a BFA in painting from Washington University in St. Louis, where she was named a Danforth Scholar. She's an artist who's mounted solo exhibitions at Turn Gallery in New York, Merrow Gallery in San Francisco, the Elaine L. Jacobs Gallery at Wayne State University in Detroit, and 68 projects in Berlin. Select group shows include Saison and Benetier, the Museum of Contemporary Art in Detroit, Canada Gallery, Pace University, and the Drawing Center. In 2015, she was awarded a grant in residency through the New York Foundation for the Arts, and in 2018, she was honored to be nominated for a Rima Hort Mann Emerging Artist Grant. Most recently, she is thrilled to be working on a monograph with Radius Books set to release in 2022. Guest lectures and teaching include Yale University, Tyler School of Art and Architecture, SUNY Purchase, Lipscomb University, the Fashion Institute of Technology, Brooklyn College, Wayne State University, and Chautauqua Institute. As a freelance curator, she consults for various private collectors and corporations. Select press includes the New York Times, Hyperallergic, Cultured Magazine, 
New American Paintings, Architectural Digest, The Harvard Advocate, Departures Magazine, and Travel and Leisure. She splits her time between Nashville and New York, and since COVID, she spent most of her time in her hometown of Nashville. I caught up with Kimia for a chat about parenthood, jewelry making, bluegrass, music city, materiality, and much more. Here's our conversation. So you were kind of, yeah. Like I was socialization anyway. was was changed. Like when you go to yeah. like an all boys or an all girls school, it's such yeah. a different dynamic, right? I it imagine. Is, I don't know. I didn't do it, but for sure. And and in the south, yeah. It's Reese Witherspoon went to my high school. Amy Grant. It's like very breeds a lot of psychopaths and anorexia. So, jeez. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> wow, that's some school legacy. Yeah, yeah. We had two we had two full-time eating disorder counselors. Goodness. And and after like a couple of years of working at our school, both of them developed eating disorders. Which I well, thought was fascinating as a 16-year-old. But a chance at fame. So you know, you win some, <laughs> you lose some. <laughs> you, you know, you, you take go. the good with the bad, I guess. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah, that's Absolutely. so wait, this is I guess we can jump into your past in this sense. So that's, sure. this is Nashville. We're talking. Yes. I and grew you up, I was born, born and, raised and raised in Nashville. My in parents were born in Music City. My parents were born in Iran and my mom left when she was little and grew up mainly in Africa in Zaire, which is now the Congo. And my dad left um, right around the 1979 Iranian revolution right. and his yeah. whole family came to Nashville. Yeah. Well, there was an influx at that point, but, but, the Congo. Yeah. Did- my, my grandfather. So they were basically, um, he was, he came to the States to get his degree in medicine and ended up becoming a surgeon and service was like a big part of his life. He was a member of the Baha'i faith and he wanted to serve the poor. So he and my grandmother moved to Zaire and, wow. uh, with my mom and her sister and he, worked in the general hospitals for 40 years and he was actually Mobutu's personal physician. Oh, really? Yeah. Wow. He took that- Glenn, Glenn Close's father was Mobutu's original physician and he got fired and recommended my grandfather as his replacement. Well, that's something so, for the legacy. I mean, that's, it go. sounds he sounds like a very stand up. He was individual. a super, super guy. Super yeah. dude. Yeah. Yeah. That's impressive. So, mm-hmm. but yeah, so born and raised in Nashville, yeah. which, you know, I, music is a big part of my life and you know, the I, ha- I have heard yes. music's a thing, right? Yes. So same with uh, me, same with me. Oh, really? Oh, this is going to be, yeah, good, I, I married a musician. <laughs> oh, good. Well, up, how could you? Yeah. How, yeah. <laughs> I always wished I was a musician. My mom told me that I, Good that God gave me many talents, but that a good voice was not one of them. So singing oh, is, <laughs> yeah, she's, she doesn't really mince her words. Um, yeah. <laughs> but I always longed to be a musician. I love music. And a lot of my friends from Nashville grew up to be like quite famous. I mean, it, it seems as though that's like, if you grow up in Williamsburg, there's chances yeah. are there's artists around, Totally, you know, Nashville's going to be music. And, you know, yep. I, played music and when I toured with bands and stuff we never at least I don't think so I don't think we ever played Nashville 
What? That yeah, makes we, no sense. We played. Where else did we play in Tennessee? That's funny. Was it Memphis? I don't know. Yeah, but I don't think we ever. Maybe we just didn't have a our like our home homemade indie booking. We didn't book a show maybe. or something. So never got to play in Nashville. So the There's first time, time I yeah. I, <laughs> well, the first time I was ever in Nashville, really, other than just passing through whenever uh-huh. we were driving through, was uh, I had a show at the Frist and. Oh, I, I didn't know you showed at the Frist. Yeah, I had a show there. That's and, so cool. Um, yeah, I had a solo, and then next, and it in conjunction or not in conjunction, but at the same time, Carrie Mae Weems had a solo show wow. there, which was great. So it was really Incre- great. What experience. year was that? What year was that? Oh boy, this is where we. <laughs> you remember? Come on, you remember a museum show on your not the, resume? Not the year. <laughs> I swear to God, I don't. My memory. I'm starting to get concerned. I used to think it was just doing a lot of these was it like was it like two years ago was it like 10 years ago no i think it might have been 2012 okay it's somewhere around there yeah that's so cool yeah Yeah, the frist didn't open until i was 16 it used to be the post office nashville did not have an art museum until i was 16 it's a great place yeah it's a cute little it bothers me that they don't have a permanent collection they're not a collecting institution and that annoys me but um it's fun to hear that contemporary artists like you have shown there i only know a few others that have yeah Um, well they put me up in that train station next door which is really cool yeah yeah yeah, it's yeah. kind of beautiful awesome. little place to stay mm-hmm. and then it's a short commute over but That's so when right. I went there I knew Nashville's a music town but I didn't Big know time. it was that music town like I got oh, off the yeah. plane it's and music there's like, city yeah there's guitars in the airport and like yeah, yeah, in yeah. little vitrines it's pretty Everywhere. cool and and you know growing up here like there wasn't anything to do except for we had great concerts like I got to, I met John Mayer before he was John Mayer nice. I was up on stage with like Fergie and the Black Eyed Peas like all these people who went on to become huge like started off in Nashville and I was like 14 at these like little music festivals that they would have it was called yeah. River Stages it was down at the river um and we that was all kind of what there was to do in town that's cool other than yeah other than i don't know what else did we do nothing i studied a lot just honky tonking and yeah going to school were you creative as a kid yeah i was always super creative i always loved art and um my mom said that you know she would take me to her work meetings and just plop me on the ground with a blanket and like colors and i would just sit there for like three hours drawing and she would get all her work done i was like i was made to be a pandemic baby (laughs) <laughs> well, we, tr- we traveled, we had family in Europe. And so we'd go to see them every now and again. And when we were there, I'd see um, incredible museums. So I you saw like, the, I, it, right? so I didn't have anything at home, but I was like seeing the Vatican, you know, yeah. in the yeah. summer, which was really cool. So you're and it definitely, to it. Le- yeah, it definitely left an impression. I didn't really see any contemporary art though until I was in high school and I started going to Borders bookstore after high school every day. And I I would just sit in their art section. And I remember discovering Eric Fischel and opening up this book and just falling in love with his paintings and being like, I'm going to be a painter. I didn't know that. I didn't know that people still painted. I thought it like died with Michelangelo because all I had seen (laughs) was like the Sistine Chapel. (laughs) Um, so yeah, once I discovered that there was a contemporary art world, I was like, oh yeah, I'm going to, this is what I'm going to do. 
Were there, and this is going to sound like a very uninformed question, but I mean, are there a lot of galleries? Were there a lot of galleries at that point in Nashville? No, there still are not a lot of galleries. And the ones that I have spoken with are not profitable. I mean, yeah. I've had very open, honest conversations with the owners and they're like, oh yeah, we've been operating the law since 1994, but we think it's important to have a present, an artistic something in Nashville. So it's more of a community service project <laughs> than a business. Um, yeah, well, it's really... Them. <laughs> yeah, it's really a town dominated by music and visual art here is really, really anemic. It's really anemic. So I don't know. I'm hoping to maybe help change that. Um, we'll see. I think you're going to. I have a feeling. I hope, I hope you can start so. curating stuff and you can <laughs> Or get I'm some... just going to leave or I'm just going to go back to New York. <laughs> no, no. New York's like, you know, you did the right thing. You got out at a good time and. <laughs> You know, it's played. You need everyone. Everyone realizes now you can just go out and get something a lot cheaper, more space, everything. It's true. It, I mean, I we are building a house that's like ten minutes from the Nashville airport. So my plan is to just hop on a plane and be in New York in an hour and a half once a month. Um, but we'll see how that really plays out once the world is back open. Yeah, let's be honest. Yeah. Though that's all you need. Like once I think. A month. <laughs> I mean, I think that's true. It when you're in New York, I had my daughter. Yeah. It oh yeah, for sure. Right. It was too much stimulation. I just couldn't between her crying and waking up at night and the sirens and the loud talkers on the sidewalk that I could hear from my bedroom. Like I, I just wasn't sleeping. Yeah. Um, and so it's nice to be, to have, to be in a restful place that has a lot of nature. I can that's imagine. Kind of, and you didn't even yeah. have to dip into the whole school system debacle. <laughs> that's right that's that right insanity. yeah everyone says you're not a real new yorker until you have a child in the new york school system and i think that's a very real statement yeah or you could change it to you you're not a, a completely exhausted new yorker until you jump <laughs> through those hoops because then you've just had it you know so why why have you stayed it sounds like you want to go why don't you no come on down to nashville we need you i would we love need to people like come on down Oh, the food is good. I had great Mexican the food. food and, is I, good. and I went to, is it called Barista Parlor? Some coffee shop that was amazing. Oh, where I you mean, could... I haven't been out to eat in a year. I have no idea. Oh, yeah, that's true. But, but it was just, it was a great place. And the music was. There's, yeah, there's really yummy food down here. It's true. There's, and there's really good music. There's crappy art, really good music, and really good food. And but you're going to change the art part. So we got that covered. <laughs> No pressure. I'm gonna, I'm gonna try. God help me. <laughs> Would you want to open a space? Such maybe bad taste. Yeah. No, I've been talking to a couple of the institutions down here about maybe teaching, and I recently met with this guy who has like loads of money and is thinking about starting an artist residency, but has no idea about what that means or looks like. So I might consult for him or something like that. You should do it. Um, yeah, I, I hope to do it. Um, so yeah, we'll see. The city needs you. I'm from Pittsburgh and I feel like there's enough there. You know what I mean? Yeah. 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 But I I can imagine it would feel good to go back home and to inject some life into it. You know, I think so. It's just, it's, you know, there was so much racism towards anyone who wasn't white and Christian that I experienced growing up. 
Oh my God. My fourth grade teacher dressed us up in blackface for Halloween. And I, and as a fourth grader, I was like, I don't want shoe polish on my face because that's what she brought in to class to put on children's faces, including her own. And I was like, I don't want shoe polish on my face. And her answer was, well, that's okay because you're brown anyway. So, you know, you, you can be exempt from the blackface. And I'm laughing because it's so horrific. And then we went and had all school assembly and all presented this costume. It was for the book Maniac McGee, which is about a black boy and a white boy who are friends. So her heart was in the right place. She wanted to dress up as this boy's family, but she just did it in the most offensive, um, horrific way imaginable. Yeah. And she, she stuffed her dress to make herself look larger and got a black curly wig from a thrift store and put shoe polish on her face and shoe polish on the faces of the 10 children in my fourth grade class, except for me, because I was brown anyway. And then we went up and presented for all school assembly. And there was one other African-American family in the school and they promptly removed their child. And I found out, I found out years later that my mom went and spoke to the principal about it and she was my mom was just completely gaslit and they were like you're being overly sensitive blah 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 and then a few and then last year i was telling this story to someone and you know people don't believe me and i found in my yearbook of that year that this teacher won best teacher of the year or whatever and they had her profile at the front of the yearbook and the photo one of the photos in the montage is her in blackface it made the yearbook it made the yearbook. I have it. I can show it to you. It's in my room right now. I, can I just so, say on the side, not to be <laughs> insensitive to the situation, you look amazing for having been in fourth grade in 1952. <laughs> Someone said that to me. Someone in New York was like, are you 85 years old? Like, Seriously. What are you talking about? <laughs> this, no. This, oh this was, 19, was this 1992, 1993? Ugh. No, 1994. I have to go look at my yearbook. Anyway, that's, that's how I grew that's up. That's the South. So that I happens. I don't love Nashville. I don't love the social fabric of this town yeah. at all. And there's a real lack of curiosity that I find um, that permeates the city. But uh, there's really beautiful trees. <laughs> so <laughs> there's that. That's, well, that's what f- I'm focusing on at the moment. <laughs> yeah. I mean, do you feel as though, I mean, especially given what the last year or so, right? And what's mm-hmm. transpired. Yeah. Do you feel that the, for the for the country enlarged to change, that we do need a sort of decentralization of like urban city people into the rest of the country to sort of tip the balance because when you look at that political map it just seems too you know split and like if you look at texas it seems like a really interesting experiment because you've got everything there you know what i mean you've got all sides of things and i think for the country to really be united states i mean you you kind of have to at some point it has to be you know mixed in a way you know what i mean the sort of the geographical demographic of the country. It seems like it's gotten too split. Yeah. It seems like it's really polarized. Um, And any, any, any type of that sort of division and polarization, I think is really destructive. Um, But ultimately I just, I don't think that partisan politics is ever the answer. It's uh, I think it's inherently divisive because you're either this or you're this. 
Right. The point of partisan politics is, is to be different parties. It's not to unify. Yeah. And, um, and so I really don't have, my faith is not in partisan politics at all. Um, it's in changing human hearts. That's how, I think that's how the social fabric is, is changed and transformed. And yeah, I think, you know, mixing different people together with different ideologies, however that comes about, is part of that process. Definitely. Um, I, think, I think music can do it too. Music I is think kind art, of like yeah, a combiner, music, you know? Art, hundred percent music is such a unifier and i think the arts in general have the power to unlock people's hearts which is what makes them so potent and i think why i fell in love with them in the first place so yeah i think that's really really good point so since you knew from apparently when you were a toddler that art was (laughs) kind of like a lane for you when did you i mean in high school were you doing art and that was your thing yeah yeah i so this this high school I went to had a really strong art program and I had this incredible teacher Anne Blackburn and she's really the one who was like, you should look at, you know, she was, she made a list of schools. She was like, there's RISD, there's Pratt, all these things I'd never heard of. And she was really supportive of me. And, um, it was her who really gave me the vision of like, this is, you can actually do this as a profession and make money and be happy. (laughs) So yeah, I was in high school that I decided. You applied to art schools. But didn't you go to Washington, St. Louis? I went to Washington, St. Louis. I did not apply to any um, just strictly art schools, except yeah. I did. I did the the joint. Pro- I applied to the joint program between Tufts and the Museum School of Fine Art. Okay. Um, but I ended up getting a full ride to WashU, so that's kind of what did it. Um, that's why I went there, and it was a great experience. And they have a really strong art school. So they do. At school, I went to the San Francisco Art Institute. How was that? Which was kind of. That was, it was, it's just polar opposite experiences because Washi was a bunch of like super type A overachiever kids. Yeah. And then the San Francisco Art Institute is like a bunch of people who are barely scraping by and like, you know, it's so okay to fail at SFAI and it's so not okay to fail at Washu. And so um, having both of those experiences, I think were really useful for me. Yeah, what's your, I mean, there is a prevailing thought and it's definitely something more embraced of late that the idea of failure is, you know, how you learn and that's a great thing to do. But how did you feel about that in relation to the two places? So at WashU, it was actually, I think what I learned from there is how to work really, really hard. They insisted your junior and senior year that you choose a major and that you be in your studio from 9 a.m. to 4 p.m. Monday, Wednesday, Friday. Um, so That's it was very, cool. it was very rigorous. Yeah. Um, and, but you know, crits were really brutal. People would run out crying. The teachers would pit students against each other. It was actually quite destructive in a different sense. Um, and that was really hard to heal from, but the rigor stayed with me. And then SFAI was the complete opposite. I remember in one of the crits, one of my fellow classmates walked up and he put a, he tacked a post-it note up on the wall and then he went and sat down and we had to crit (laughs) the post-it note for whatever, an hour. And, you know, having, having that, seeing that, seeing that willingness to experiment and fail was not something I had any exposure to at WashU. 
people right. were wound up so tightly. Um, and at SFAI, it was the first time that I felt like I could kind of let my hair down and experiment and try, try new things that I didn't feel safe doing at WashU. Right. Um, so I had that rigor, I had that hard work baked into me. Um, but then SFAI kind of really allowed me to like loosen up and trust my intuition in a way that, that WashU kind of beat out of me. Um, so I find, I found both experiences really opposite, but really, uh, I took useful things from both. Yeah. I was going to say, because you know, when you look back at your experience, a lot of times some things yeah. are pretty extreme and you feel yeah. like afterwards you learn a lot from it, but it was really hard and kind of dramatic yes. in a way. But yes, then you think, if, well, if, well yeah. if I didn't have that, would I be as strong right. as I am? It's almost like you didn't go to a gray school. You had the black and then the white, like the extremes, right. and then you That's made right. your own gray afterwards. I always That's wonder because right. your experience, it's kind of reminded me of like when I was young and I played soccer. It was like we had to be a practice every day. Yeah. And the mm-hmm. coach would yell at us and scream yeah. at us and make us run laps. And, you know, mm-hmm. it was hard and it was yeah. stressful, but it really made me value hard work and putting in totally. practice and being. Yep. So, you know, nowadays, if you would coach kids like that, they would fall apart or the parents <laughs> would jump on the field and say, you can't do that. You know what I mean? It's a totally different environment, yeah, yeah. but I can't help but to always wonder, is it, is there a value in that sort of like toughening your skin in a way? I think so. I mean, I think there's a value in any type of suffering. However, that suffering comes your way, whether it's impo- whether it's self-imposed or imposed on other by other people or by your environment. Um, for me, anyway, the the way that I've grown the most in life has always been through really, really painful experiences, which yeah. is what my art is about, essentially. Oh, Actually, a really good transition. Great trans. <laughs> uh, you got this. I'm going to sit back and listen. Go ahead. oh my gosh but yeah i mean just yeah the idea of like suffering as a form of transformation i think is is um is universal and that is a a sort of element of the work yeah i think it's a huge element of the work um from the jump it's what what do you mean from the jump from the beginning or from the get-go no, I think it, I think it took a while and I think it got really ramped up after I was, uh, after I experienced pregnancy and birth with my daughter, because that is the definition of suffering, <laughs> both, <laughs> emotion, both emotionally, physically, spirit, in every, in every way. It's, it's, um, it's actually torture. It's like pure torture. So after that experience, um, is when I really started putting exploring that in, in my work and that's really where the newest pieces come from um but also how going through that pregnancy childbirth breastfeeding sleep deprivation like it i'm obsessed with my child she's the best thing that's ever happened to me becoming a mother is the most wonderful thing that's ever happened to me so for me, it's like, it's looking at the paradox of suffering right up next to joy, like the greatest joy and like unfathomable amounts of love. Right. Um, And how those two things go hand in hand and coexist. And I try to sort of um, bake that into the work where you like, it's part suffering, part celebratory, part pain, part beauty. Um, and especially with the materials that I use, it, that I'm having so much fun with that at the moment. I recently started using pearls 
um, which I think are, is like a perfect metaphor for suffering and beauty because that's how a pearl is formed. It's like when sand or an irritant gets into an oyster, the oyster coats it with protein and that's what becomes a pearl. And so um, I feel like that is exactly what we're talking about. The, the act of suffering oftentimes leads to, leads to beautiful qualities developing in us as humans. Um, and I've also been using uh, lava beads and glass, like nice. things that are baked in fire, um, just as this idea of sort of like walking through fire, walking through pain and, and coming out the other side stronger. Um, I also made jewelry for a while in college. I took metalsmithing for two years. And not many people know this, but in order to bend or work with metal, you have to put it in a pot of acid that's called a pickle. And a pickle, it literally like reorients the ions in the metal and allows it to become soft and malleable. And I think that's just another example of like this extreme environment where the metal is literally suffering. But because of that suffering, it's made malleable. It's you're able to work with it. You're able to form it in a new direction. And I think it is when we are placed in, you know, in the fire, in pots of acid that we can sort of melt away like our rough edges and um, transform ourselves. So, yeah. I think we, we've achieved our theme for the day. <laughs> I think so. I think so. Because really, isn't, isn't a beautiful parallel to all that that you're talking about, kind of what happens in the studio? Because it's suffering. It's a constantly, grind. It's, constantly. Or maybe there's people out there who painting is just, and sculpting is just like a <laughs> ice skating it, or something. But I, think I, mean, I think it's up and down. Up yeah. and down. But I it de- is a slog, I mean, you know? It's, it's hard work. The, the long term is definitely a slog. And I think the reason that I have been able to stay in it is because I do have moments where, or weeks where it's like, wow, this feels easy. This feels fun. But then you hit another wall. But yeah, it's, it's again, it's like highs and lows. It's like the, the sweet, gentle smile versus the dirty full diaper. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I didn't mean to make you spin. That is exactly, that is Isn't exactly it? what it is. Oh yeah. my God. That's, That's life. That's exactly what it is. That is life That's in life. general. It's great it, and it's shit at the same time. Yeah, that's exactly it. That's exactly it. And I think I'm so grateful that I am a professional creative because when you engage in creative work on a professional level, I think it's such um, a mental practice. Yeah. And what you learn in the studio, I apply to like my outside life and vice versa. Whereas I think, you know, people in other careers where it's not so creative, it's more just like, I don't know, um, a matter of fact, getting work done. There are, there are really sort of um, special lessons that maybe you miss if, if creativity isn't your, isn't your medium, isn't your, you know, isn't how you make your, your living. Um, but yeah, it's a, it's a mental practice, I think, for the most part. I totally agree. I feel like, um, it, I, I feel guilty thinking it, but I do think that, that if you're not thinking creatively or hitting those levels of yeah, like thinking about something so deeply or visually that you're missing part of life. But then again, from moments that I've had playing music where I'm like, not like shows or anything like that, but like jamming with people and mm-hmm. playing and where you hit this mm-hmm. euphoric 
kind of like meditative bliss of like zoning yes. out and you're just yes. playing the music. That's something that I feel like, oh man, I, well, I can say it now too, cause I haven't done that in a long time. I mean, I still play, but yeah. I'm not in that setting that people who don't get that are missing out because it's such an amazing totally. feeling. You know? It's an amazing, it's, it's transcendent. And I yeah. remember feeling that in high school when I started painting after school every day, I would go and paint in our studios at, at high school for like three hours just alone and i remember a couple times like just getting so in the zone that i wouldn't even know what i was making and i would it would just it was just so intuitive and i would step back and be like wow i had no idea that's what i just made kind of a thing feeling like i was connected to something so much bigger than myself and feeling literally outside of my body that was so euphoric and so transcendent. It was that feeling that was like, I have to do this for the rest of my life. There's right. no, there's just no other option. I can't sell insurance. I can't go, <laughs> I can't go be a doctor. I can't be a lawyer. Like I, I know. And I feel like people who don't, you know, for all the people who are like, who aren't creative or make art and they say to themselves, people who say to themselves like oh i can't imagine or like what do you really do or how do you do that yeah, for a living yeah, yeah they just don't understand that side of it that you can have those no moments. they've never experienced that or they've experienced it like when they're on a jog which i have right. never experienced the, the wall or whatever it's called. people oh my god people who go running at 6 a.m i want what they have yeah that's true that is a i don't have it something i don't i don't have that um no. but yeah i mean i think people get that euphoric uh, transcendence in other areas. I know some people who feel that when they cook. Yeah. I also hate cook. I hate cooking and running in equal measure. <laughs> You're um, not a cook? You don't like it? I mean, no, it's, I just, I would rather be painting. You know, it's I like if I'm going to totally use hand, if I'm going to use my hands and my energy, I want to be in my studio. I don't want to be in a kitchen. I completely understand. Um, but I like baking. I do like baking. I'm in a family of foodies and they don't understand my, my not. That's, that's great because that means other people can cook for you. That's a perfect situation. I do a lot of cooking, but I think the thing is, is like for me, food is fuel, you know, mm -hmm. where I think they, they're just yeah. like, what? <laughs> like in New York, because I just want to keep, I just want to keep Yeah, working. I want to keep going. Yeah, so I don't want to just for... take a break, you know? Exactly. Exactly. In New York for like a year, my husband and I, Actually, probably two years. We were both just like just working so hard at our inner, and we just ate canned soup every night. We just would go to like the bodega. <laughs> I thought you were gonna say order in. <laughs> we did that, but then we got sick of all the places near us, and we were just oh, yeah. like, we were just like we don't want to cook. We don't. We just need something. We need calories, and yeah. we need like cooked vegetables, <laughs> and and canned soup was canned soup. It's disgusting. It's disgusting. But that's really what we did. It's easy though. It's, it's got all really you need easy. in a little can. Yeah. Man. It was like Amy's or something organic. <laughs> oh, well, that's good. At least it wasn't like, you know, hopefully said not there like... wasn't like BPA in the cans. <laughs> Who knows? We'll find out in like 10 years if I'm like in the hospital for my year of canned soup. Oh, yeah. It must have had something to do with that Amy's that you had for a year. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure you're just fine from that. So w the work you were making when you got out of school, was it very yeah. different from what you were doing in school? Which school? Undergrad or grad? Grad. Um, so in grad school, I was really, I guess it's related to what I'm doing now in the sense that I was really interested in exploring the female form 
the female body and the different ways that um, beauty is, uh, what's the word, imposed upon us. It's a very Western, Caucasian, white standard of beauty that the magazines, that Hollywood, all these places are um, just like pumping out. And uh, as someone who like didn't, doesn't fit that model, I was, and grew up in the South where it was so prevalent. Um, I was always really interested. And then again, the anorexia, I grew up, you know, girls that I went to high school with have since died because of eating disorders. Like it was very serious. So that was something that I was making a lot of paintings about, um, just the way that we, uh, the violence imposed upon women's bodies. And again, that came from a place of suffering. And I was interested in um, exploring that suffering, both from a personal lens, but also just from a collective lens, um, women as a whole. I think it's a, pub it's a public health crisis, the way that women's bodies are, are um, portrayed in media and advertising. So that's really what a lot of my work was about. And so the fact that uh, the work is still figurative and the work is very linked to my now my own body and the experience of birth and pregnancy, um, I think it's, it's, it's a continuation. Right. But it's just gotten more personal and it's gotten more specific. It's, it's gotten more articulated, I think. Um, so that's exciting for me to see. Yeah. Do you feel like since the time of like growing up in that environment and today, those kind of image standards have changed at all? I do. I think there is, there's like chipping away at that model and there's questioning and you see videos now and people doing their dissertations on it. Um, there's this incredible researcher, what's her name? Something Kilborn, I think it's Dr. Kilborn. Anyway, she did this YouTube series called Killing Us Softly. If you haven't, if you're listening and you haven't watched it out there, just go to YouTube and type in Killing Us Softly, Kilborn. And she goes through um, all these different tropes and advertising of how women are portrayed and the violence that you see um, on women's bodies and how it's used to, to objectify and dehumanize females. Um, and I think, you know, just the existence of researchers like her and people who are making content and putting it out there that is like uh questioning the way that we are obsessing over um over beauty in this in this beauty standard i think that's helping to shift the narrative but it's i mean go walk through an airport and look at the magazine covers and count how many bodies are thin white females with you know breast implants it's right. it's nine out of ten and the weird thing um, about that isn't it like the perception uh, of of who's running that stuff like who's running those magazines is it these men who are yeah know, objectifying or placing this kind of thing but it's the weird thing is like it's they're magazines for women that men don't exactly. typically read exactly and exactly. most of the men that i know aren't necessarily attracted to stick figure looking women you know yeah. what i mean like totally so and a lot of the models cycle. are like 14 it is it is this bizarre cycle of um of it's just lies it's just lies right? and it i mean i guess that's what sells because the more that you perpetuate this fly the more it continues and then it, do you so, think though that it's more sorry just not no to, go ahead because if you look at like music right the kind yeah. of like women, like the image of women in music is much different. I think there's a lot more 
variety in the women who are making music and who are very, very popular, who sell lots of records and who are on Billie TV. Eilish. Yeah. Right. JLo, people like that, you know, not stick figure. Like, yeah. like mm-hmm. do you think in the fashion industry, it's just perpetuated because people feel like in fashion clothes just look good. Like with no necessarily like no body in the way. It's just like the so. clothing. I but that so. gets yeah. interpreted as beauty because yeah. they're models. You know what I mean? And totally. they're quote unquote beautiful, supposedly. But I don't think that's Absolutely. what people find attractive necessarily. Yeah, I agree. And it's I think weird. that I think that people who do find it attractive, oftentimes if you really question it and get to the bottom of it, it's because it's learned. Right. It's because they've learned to find it beautiful rather than what they naturally would find is beautiful. Right. Not to say that there's anything wrong with women who are tall and thin and, and have giant breasts. Like, yeah, they're gorgeous. But just it's like, you know, 1% of the human population looks like that. Right. And to take that 1% and post it on 99% of magazines and in Hollywood, and it's the media that we are being fed. Right. So you get this distorted image of this percentage and, and this expectation that you're supposed to look this way in order to be um, thought of as uh, attractive. But that even um, comes down to like being smart because people associate being attractive with being smart, being successful. So it's just this obsession with our physical appearance and our this obsession with our physical body. Um, and that's really kind of what for a long time my work was about right um uh, and I wonder... I, the work is yeah it's still about the body it's just i i i no longer feel a need to explore that it's kind of it's boring to me now at this point right i wonder if in ruben's time all the women felt immense pressure to just be <laughs> overweight i think they did because I mean, it was a sign like of, you, of wealth of right? wealth that's right yeah to be curvy yeah I mean, maybe it's just human <sighs> nature or something. It's like always going to be something. It's yeah, always going to be something. Yeah, I guess it's always going to be like, well, no, I don't think it's, I think, it'll, I think it'll get better. I think as humans mature, it'll get better. Oh, no, it's definitely, I, yeah. I mean, it's not by no means perfect or even close to it, but it's definitely yeah. better than it was, you know. Yes. All in all, in general, I think hopefully we're evolving somewhat. I think big time. Yeah, I think we're on a evolutionary track both materially and spiritually and that that will always continue i do think that humans are fighting you know thousands and thousands and thousands of years of evolution too so you know what i mean like these sort of works are like baked for sure for some reason and that's that's another huge theme in my current work is this idea of like inherited trauma or trauma that we pass down from generation to generation um both on purpose or accidentally Um, and how, you know, there, there's all this research that Holocaust survivors have like in their children, there are genetic markers that that are from that extreme trauma. Um, And I think that all of us as humans have that, even if we, even if we don't know it and it, it drives our decisions, it drives sometimes our personalities, it drives our trauma responses um, so that's another huge theme in my work is about thinking about the ancestors, all the people who have come before us, and then thinking about all the people who will come after us, who our lives will, sh- will shape in some way. And that, of course, is also that theme is so related to becoming a mom because yeah. you're shaping this new person right. who will maybe have children of her own someday. Yeah. 
Well, of course it's baked into us though, because human yeah. nature, like before we were socialized, I mean, it was just like, oh, is that other human going to kill me? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Like it was basically a survival thing. You know what I mean? Totally. So that's genetically totally. baked in, you know, as totally. much as we become a society and try to be civil beings, you know, <laughs> <laughs> like the underscore is like staying alive, right? It's like the, I mean, yeah, just think about the toilet paper shortage at the beginning of the oh pandemic. We're, never, ju- we're like never understood that that was where we went with that we're like one one pandemic away from just <laughs> raiding totally. every single walmart <laughs> right i never understood yeah. that i was like couldn't you just wash like why wouldn't it be food that you'd want to get oh my before god. toilet paper anyway oh my god we could not yeah we i was ordered i waited three months for a toilet paper order that i made on amazon last oh. this time last year i was waiting for toilet paper to show up in the mail not to what a year not what to a brag, year. but my wife was like <laughs> way proactive she had to, we were stocked before it was even we close. had in nashville we had uh what's the word not quotas we had limits of how much you could buy at the store oh, they, yeah. they, it's, it's sanctions what's the word i'm looking for they imposed the limit you could only buy four at a time like four rolls at a right time. yeah yeah you were so one pack of four there was you a cap at how many you could buy yes yes so we yeah anyway well, yeah, no one, no right. one should be buying that much of anything. <laughs> exactly, Ever. and then there's like all those, all those TikTok videos of the guys who had like the the garages filled with toilet paper that was that was just selling them for three times the normal amount. Oh, jeez! Entrepreneurship sees we? no who are we sees no yeah. boundaries. That's right. That's I'm telling you, we're we're That's essentially right. those 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 animals from like back in the early days. Just that is exactly what we are. We're just more know. evolved. Yes, uh, ideally. Ideally. <laughs> so, to with the work, degree. with the work of recent, um, you said you were excited about it because of the materiality and things like that. Like, how has it progressed? Has anything also changed since you know last year or since moving from the city? Is that yeah, sort of I started also things? cutting. I started cutting them out of rectilinear forms. So they used to be, you know, I would just paint on like a traditional, um, with a what is it, a canvas or a panel with right angles. And then I started just completely freeing them from these squares and rectangles um, and cutting into them. And uh, I don't know, they just feel like, I I also make sculpture. And so the paintings for the first time have started to feel more like the sculptures, which is really exciting because I see those two tracts in my studio, those two different worlds merging. Yeah. and then in terms of the, the actual way that I'm drawing the figure for many, many years, actually I painted really photorealistically. People don't believe me when I say that, but I did. And um, I would paint from photos or from life. And now mainly I am making paintings just out of my head, the figure. So the figures are, they're not anatomically correct. They're more expressions or gestures of figures. Yeah, And that's also really exciting and feels really freeing because it's kind of like I broke free from the shackles of what felt like shackles of the photograph. And now it's just about sort of mining my subconscious or my mind's eye um, for forms. Yeah. It feels like going fishing. It's really fun. See what you get, right? Yeah. It's an open so ocean. Like, you never know what's going to come it out. It is. And then just like the materials I use, oh my God, I'm like using glitter, I'm using rubies, I'm using lapis lazuli and opals and fire glass. And 
it's just, it's like, I, tr- I still am using paint, but I just added all of these other super fun things to work with. I feel like a kid in a candy store. Um, so like, I'm no, if I want like something to be, uh, like green, I no longer am dependent on mixing a green. I can just go get like a piece of glass or like an, em- I ordered emeralds. So I can get an emerald and use that green. Yeah. Um, so for me, that's really been transformative and so, so enjoyable. I was going to ask if that was like Nashville finds or if you're ordering things or. <laughs> yeah, I'm ordering things. I'm doing a lot of, I, I get all my paper, all my paper is papyrus. I order it directly from Egypt. I have a guy there, Mustafa. He's awesome. Um, he makes my sheets for me and custom makes certain sizes and stuff. Nice. Um, and then I, I don't remember if I said this or not, but I did jewelry making in college for two years. So I found when I was home for COVID, I found in my parents' house an old box of jewelry making tools. And I found this strand of pearls. Um, and that's kind of what started me on this uh, blend of painting, sculpture, jewelry making paintings, which is kind of what they are now. They're like, I think about them as jewelry for your mind. Nice. Um, yeah. So. So you're in like an exploratory mode with that stuff. Yeah, totally. But also I feel like, um, I also feel like I figured some stuff out. It's like, it was exploratory and I'm coming, I'm like seeing my way through the, I'm seeing the light at the end of the tunnel where the work is just making sense, both conceptually and materially. And, um, this is a tangent, but when you're working, are you listening to music? Cause music's still a big part of, you know, <laughs> mm-hmm. stuff. I mean, it can't be right. Like it can't be huge on huge. mute when you live in Nashville. <laughs> I would imagine. Yeah. I mean, sometimes, sometimes I'll turn it off, but, um, for the most part, yeah, I listen to it constantly. That's where I got a lot of my titles also listening yeah. to songs and, or ideas even. Um, yeah, I listen constantly. And my husband, like I said, my husband's a musician. So sometimes he, and he, his p- keyboard is set up in the next room. So I'll just listen to him play too. Nice. Now yeah. I was going to ask what the genres that you like to listen to and then his genre of music. And is that. <laughs> he's so funny. He grew up, um, well, he's a jazz, uh, piano player. He's amazing. Nice. He, but he plays a lot of instruments. He plays guitar, drums. He has a set of bagpipes. He plays trumpet, like. He's just, he sings, he's, a, he's an astonishingly prolific musician. Um, but his, I would say his heart and soul is jazz, is jazz piano. Um, and he loves that. Uh, but he also loves musicals and he grew up in, um, in the church, like in, in, in a big, one of these big mega churches. And so he jokes about the fact that every time he is writing or playing something, he always like defaults to sort of churchy spiritual yeah yeah to like churchy i don't know sunday not gospel because gospel is great i wish it was gospel it's the it's just it's white people church music oh that's a shame which is different than gospel white people Um, church music i never went to church but i can totally imagine how bad that might be it's really bad and no one like no one should have to listen to that um, it's like really bad Mumford and Sons, basically. Oh boy. So he jokes about that, that that's kind of his default. But, um, I like, I like a, a wide range of things. I I've been listening to Novo Amor lately and Billie Eilish and, um, who else? I have to look at my Spotify. 
but yeah, I have a I have a wide range. Upbeat. Sometimes stuff. I can e- I can even listen to country, just occasionally. I like that that was painful for you to admit. Like, uh, yeah. I know. I There's like some bluegrass new vote. a lot. There's though. some new vote stuff. <laughs> I love old bluegrass, like the flat love, and scrubs, uh, like the old so time stuff. Not so the good. new, not the new. No, stuff. no, no, no. The I love original. the Alabama Shakes. Yeah, I have a real love of music, and I, you know, like I said, if I could be, if I could choose what my art would be, I would choose music. Yeah, but my mom really shut that down. So yeah, thanks, mom. <laughs> Alabama Shakes are so good, right? Her, her solo record. Oh, oh my. my god, goodness! Dead. I Dead. rarely. Her voice. I mean. Yeah, I think I rarely get the chills when I listen to music, mm-hmm. but when mm-hmm. I watch her live, I get the chills. It's absurd. That's why it's I named that group show that I curated recently, Sound and Color. Oh, I it. didn't realize that. After that's really cool. Yeah, that's awesome. That's a great song. So you get a lot of you get a lot of inspiration from music lyrics as well. Yeah, I've been titling shows after music since the early two thousands. For sure. That's awesome. It's rare that That's I awesome. have a show that isn't named after a record. Really? A, a lot of it's jazz because I, I kind of uh, came up like I was a jazz DJ in college and I played a lot of jazz. What stuff. do you what do you play? Well, I play guitar. And when I was young, I played saxophone and bass clarinet. But I don't really play that that much anymore. But um, guitar was kind of my instrument. So. Did you study music? No. Self-taught. No. Every, I never even had, wow. we didn't have money for lessons or anything. So wow. I, just, I taught myself how to play guitar by listening. I did it over a couple weeks oh of um, listening to the Led Zeppelin box set and trying to copy everything. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I did that's it. How I learned how like to I, paint. I, yeah. There was no YouTube then. So it wasn't like no. kids nowadays. Here's where I start to sound old. I know. These kids I'm nowadays, so jealous. I'm you so can, jealous. I love it though. Like there was yeah. this uh, Zico song, you know, the Korean like singer. And yeah. I was like, I love that guitar part. Go yeah. on YouTube. And you can learn like it. 50 tutorials on how totally. to do it like that. Totally. But when you're, I'm, when I was a kid, I would just have to hear it and try to figure it out. You know? Yeah. That, that is, that's also trauma. That also builds strength. Yes, <laughs> the way, it is, the, right. or the, the way that I used to record music was I would wait for my favorite song to come on the radio and then I would oh, grab a seed yeah. of my tape player and I would hold it up to the radio yeah, yeah, and yeah. tape the song. And that's, oh man, we've come a long way. You know, it's trauma. My first guitar was like this little <laughs> black. I mean, it was sweet of my parents. I grew up poor. So my parents got me a little black electric guitar that had a speaker in it, which wow. was so not rock and roll then. You know what I mean? To not have an yeah. amp and to be like, yeah, like yeah. you could barely hear it. that's so pretty cool. It that's was so in retrospect, cool. it was awesome, but... Uh, my mom told us told me a story later. I didn't realize this, but she said that after she got me the electric guitar, I was playing on it like all the time, and she felt really bad because I couldn't, mm. I didn't know how to play it, so I was just making Aww. noises. But she didn't have money yeah. to get me lessons, so she said she always Aww. felt bad that she couldn't do that. That's so sweet. Be I like, know. don't worry, mom. I'm a prodigy. I figured it out. Yeah, right. I I became like average, like. <laughs> As anything, as a painter, as a musician, as a podcast, no matter no. what it is, I'm gloriously no. average, and I'm fine no. with that. It's the no, spice of I, life. That does <laughs> average is the spice of life. It Look, is, as long as long as you're not playing white person church music, you're winning. That's 
you're going hard against the white people church. Although I, I don't mean, think I have a large a demographic of white, <laughs> white people church music listeners. It's a, listening it's to a this lot. Pod. It's a lot. It is. To take yes. in. It is. If you totally. if you've never sat through a Christmas program at a at a white mega church, are you even American? I. That's my question. I think I've set foot in a church maybe two or three times in my life, and one so was you, Notre Dame. So you, so you were wow, good good choice. Um, so you were not raised with any religion. So my parents Is that were right. Yeah, my parents were de- default like Lutheran, which just meant okay. my dad grew up Lutheran. Protestant. I guess. Yeah, yeah. I don't think Protestant. Is this... Isn't Lutheran a form of Protestant Christianity? Hell if I know. <laughs> Oh my God, we have to Google it. Yeah. No idea. But we, quote unquote, we were a Lutheran family, I think, because my, maybe my grandparents on my dad's side were Lutheran or something. I don't know. But we just, my dad would occasionally like put Bible quotes up or something here and there. But I I never. Where would he put, where would he put them up? On the fridge. He would just like, oh, okay. He would like. Write it down on the printer. No, print. We didn't have a printer. He wrote that down. Just write it out. Yeah. Just write it out. That's really, that's really fascinating. Yeah, but just wait, every I now and again. Never went to church or anything. And all my, a lot of my friends went to, I think it was called CCD, like catechism school or something. It was a Catholic. Oh, yeah. Like there were a lot of Catholics yes. around when I grew up. I've heard about, I heard the word catechism for the first time this year. We were touring a preschool for my daughter and they completely lied to us. They're like, we're not religious at all. Um, and then we walked in and there was an entire room set up for toddlers with goblets and crosses and rosaries. <laughs> and they were like, this is where the two-year-olds do catechism. And I was like, the what? What? And they're like, yeah, but we're not religious. I was like, okay. You're like, what? Sh- is that a 12-foot Jesus the- sculpture on the cross <laughs> like, up there? And you're like, don't look at that. Li- don't look at <laughs> literally in every single room, a, a cross up on the wall next to the blackboard. And oh. they were like, and this is where the... What did they call him? Was it a deacon? This is where the deacon wears his robes on Friday. And I was like, what? Why did I even make this appointment? Just yeah, be, just, yeah, just be open about what you are. If you're religious, cool. It's fine. Yeah. Don't lie to me about it. Yeah, but anyway, I, catechism. I never uh, grew up around. I don't know that much about it. You know, the whole What about thing. your, are you raising your child to be anything my my family is buddhist so like my extended Mm. family is buddhist but we don't we don't amazing you don't do that like you know yeah i mean when we go back to japan like we go to temples and stuff like that and we do like all that stuff but we're not like practicing buddhists you know got it every day go doing but you know what i mean it's kind of i do but that I i will say this that the sensibility of that resonates yeah. with me way more than any sort of religion that was around when I was growing up, I think. I hear, yeah, I hear that. <laughs> but I am a Westerner. Like, I grew up with a certain sensibility, too, which makes it almost, mm-hmm. like, impossible for me to truly acclimate it to is, yeah, that sort it's, of... It's in our cult- Christianity is in American culture. Yeah. It's, or just the, the... There's a different kind of belief system like i've the utmost admiration of this idea of the collective and like not mm-hmm. you being the most important you know what i mean like yes. it's not you, you the you, individual like yeah everyone else which yes will drive you crazy in a situation like covid where no one wants to wear yes. a mask because you're not going to impede on my freedoms and right. it's like no that's actually being polite to other human beings you that's you, just being know. a decent human that's right, right. So, yes yeah it is that for yeah i grew up with that sensibility too just you know Iran is Persian culture is so um, is so about the collective 
yeah. that my family, you know, my family was never just my nuclear family. It was my cousins and my dad's cousins and their kids and their spouses and their families. So um, I always, it, it's always been, and that's also in my work. It's always this tension of like the individual versus the collective and right. um, experiencing that growing up in the West outside of the home, but then experiencing a totally different set of values inside of the home. Right. That must be yeah. a, a, a sort of subtle yet very strong dichotomy because yeah you know america is just built on yes you step on other people to get yeah you can make it you can be rich and famous you can be successful right just screw everyone else you work hard you can do (laughs) you know what i mean that's basically that is that is the message i always say to be honest it's like especially living in new york you're never yeah. going to be able to understand everyone's dynamic when it's people from all over the place. So of course it makes sense that people are just like you, you do you and you know what, I won't bother you that much, but I don't really yeah. understand what the hell you're doing. You know what I mean? And yeah. yeah, you just do you, I guess, but it's, it's kind of the culture. It's, it's the way our country was sort Founded. of formed in a way. You yes, know? it's true. It's true. Yeah. And I always kind of feel guilty. Like what I always feel guilty if I'm being, too individual in a like family setting or if I'm being too group oriented out in the world as like a as a career person you know it's like I it's something that I am constantly thinking of am I being too selfish am I being too generous am I like it's a balance that I I don't know I'm always trying to figure out you probably like had instilled within you an internal level that you're always got to try to get that little bead that's right in the middle great way to that's a great metaphor yeah it, an internal level yeah and i i feel that i feel so grateful though that i grew up with um two different languages cultures religions because i think it makes you fluent in a way and it makes you adaptive in a way um that you might not necessarily be if, if you just grow up with one so it, i i think um there's a lot of times where I, I can't necessarily resolve the two, but I would take that dilemma any day. Right. Um, I wouldn't sacrifice the experience of growing up with both. Well, it makes you, they've found that bilingual people are more intelligent, more precise. <laughs> so you grew up with Farsi? I, yeah, Farsi yeah. was my first language, yeah. And then I learned English when I started school. Yeah. Yeah, yeah I think what it's... About, uh, what about your son? Um. He understands Japanese, but he's not that great at speaking it. Yeah. And he'll get it's there. hard. We'll just yeah, throw him it's over hard. There for we watch so much <laughs> Korean TV, though. He probably speaks more Korean than Japanese. Oh, that's crazy. <laughs> yeah. That's awesome. Yeah. I did a study abroad in Japan. It was oh, really? like the best, ex- yeah, best experience of my life. Where at? Shigaraki. I was doing oh, pottery. Oh, ceramics. Shigaraki yeah, is doing- one of the seven schools. Yes. It's beautiful, it was, the stuff there. We did Anagama firing. Um, and none of my teachers spoke English. And one of the students who I'm still friends with was Japanese American and she was our translator. That's so cool. It was incredible. That's the real deal. You didn't like dip your toes in the water. You took a cannonball. I (laughs) I was sleeping on the ground on a tatami mat in a ryokan. My front yard was a rice field. We walked to studio every day. It was incredible. One of our teachers was a, um, national treasure, Mitoma-san. Nice. 
And they would, they because, and Kimio is a Japanese name, and my name is Kimia. So they were all like, you look, they're like, from the back, and I have black hair. Yeah, yeah. From the back, you look Japanese. Your name is Japanese. From the front, <laughs> you do not look Japanese. <laughs> <laughs> it's funny. You just had to walk backwards to, it you know, so it's fun. like, I'm so, that's really cool though. Um, I felt so at home there though. I, there are just so many parallels between Persian culture and Japanese culture. I was like, wow, this is, if I spoke Japanese, I would never leave this country. Yeah. I, it's, I, every time we come back, I'm like, wow. Oh my God. It's, it's just a miracle. You must it's occasionally mir- smell It's tatami a miracle of and, beauty. I yeah, do. Yeah. Right. <gasps> Isn't that smell my- glorious? <gasps> My heart skips a beat every single time. There's nothing like every, it. There is nothing. There is nothing more relaxing. It's if I want to slip wonderful. into immediate zen, all I have to do is sniff to Tommy. Yeah. I just need to go buy some masks. Yeah, but that your your experience, seriously, do it. Oh it's so God. nice. But that experience that. of like a yokan instead of like a hotel oh, yeah. is like oh, yeah. a great experience. That's like it the was, real deal. It was it was life. It was transformational for my art as well. Yeah, you, and I think like. Oh, sorry. Oh, I was just gonna say, did you do onsen while you were there? Oh yeah, oh yeah. With right. my teachers, we were all like naked together, and I was. There you go. Was, yeah, they that don't care. That is definitely. <laughs> that was really something. That was, yeah, you get to know your peers. <laughs> yeah, you sure do. Imagine um, me going to onsen. <laughs> As the only white dude. And like when I go visit my family, we go yeah. to ones that are like, they're not touristy ones. They're like, yeah, they're called yeah, Super Sendo, was, which is like this, these mm-hmm. like lower tier versions of mm-hmm. it. And then there's me. <laughs> That's amazing. Yeah, it's pretty Do awesome. you speak Japanese? I uh, Enough to get by, yeah. That's amazing. I taught myself two of the three uh, alphabets, so. Wow. I taught hard. myself, it's, it's, I taught myself Kana. Katakana? Or katakana that's what it was no that's katakana. the foreign that's... word one yeah okay that was before i left i got like a workbook and nice. i did it but that was a million years ago but i was determined to learn japanese and i was like this is not i'm just gonna stick with spanish <laughs> this is not gonna happen <laughs> <laughs> you probably learned your name though like kimia yes you know? yeah. i did i learned my name i learned a couple words yeah it makes a difference though when you're there and you can actually see yeah. like hot dog and you're like oh a hot dog or ice cream yes, or things exactly. like that it makes it exactly. easier it makes it easier. That's such a great thing that you were able to do that. It was Are you incredible. doing ceramics at all anymore? Um, I took one class in New York, but it, it's just so hard because you need a kiln and like the equipment that comes along with it is it's just really prohibitive. But I hope now that I'm in Nashville, I'll be able to again. I really miss it. It seems like you I got really more. You, I'm guessing you probably have more space now. Or like I have more, more space now. Yeah. With that. yeah, yeah, and we're we're building a house, and we're building um, a separate studio outside of the house for me on the land, but you know, separate from the house, so I can escape um, my husband and child. And so maybe I might have a kiln in there. I haven't decided yet. Man, that's going to be amazing. It'll be yeah. Come visit. I'd love to. Or if you need if you need real estate, I'll start sending you some listings. I'm trying to recruit every artist I can to move, move to, to Nashville. Nashville. Yeah. Well, you asked me early on. I don't think I answered it. You were like, well, why are you still in New York? <laughs> yes. Right. And yeah. I, I think it, it, I mean, when your kid has friends and like school, yeah. and like a certain way of 14, life, 14 it's so hard, hard to flip it then. Yeah. But I, so you're you know, there I hear, for him. Well, I mean, I love it. I do. Yeah. It's a love hate relationship. You know, where New do you York, live? What, where do you live in New York? East Williamsburg. Oh, okay. So I'm right by Bushwick. And then my studio is right over in Bushwick. So it's very close. That's a great spot. Yeah. 
yeah, it's, you know, it my, gets my old studio sometimes. used to be over there. <laughs> <laughs> it's great, I, but sometimes I miss, just, yeah. I really did miss trees. I really miss trees. Yeah. And I, you know, growing up in Nashville, I don't know what your experience was like in Pittsburgh, but I was just surrounded by so much nature and I didn't realize how much I depended on it for my emotional equilibrium right. until after spending a decade in New York. Yeah. And then I just felt it like deep in my bones. I was like, I love New York. There's no place like it. Um, I, it will always be my truest home, but I really need to be in grass. <laughs> <laughs> I really need to go walk in a creek right now. Yeah. Um, so it's it's been nice to spend this whole COVID year with with just endless rolling hills and trails and blackberry bushes. All right, all right. You had a great day. <laughs> I'm sitting here in my like two foot by two foot front yard of a patch do you of not, grass. Do you not remember my blackface story? Is nobody trying to put Good point. shoe Good polish point. on your face? Gonna, uh, <laughs> I thought Pittsburgh was bad, but we, boy. Pros and cons, my friend. Pros and cons. Yeah, that's true. It's all yeah. a balance in life, you know. It's all a balance. <laughs> Trees. Yeah, I mean, Racism. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I don't think I don't think I could make great art if I wasn't suffering a little bit on right. some level. So there you go. Yeah, well, comfort and to bring that back, I joked about being average, but in a way, it's good because the kids who are always really good, they never had to work for it, so they just they took it for That's granted. True. I think. That's you know? true. That's true. Yeah. You got to grind true. a little to appreciate. You got to grind. Good. Yeah, the kids who are always good at everything. Like, where are they now? Probably uh, selling insurance. That's a good point. <laughs> watching Netflix. I don't know. Just yeah, out. watching that. Maybe they're actually maybe they're on TikTok. Maybe they're TikTok stars. Yeah, they're Twitch streamers with there like a million followers. Yeah. Uh, Ad revenue. Well, it's so nice. To, I mean, I feel like you know, it's such a nice story to hear of that you're moved back there and you really sort of. Oh, like, that's sweet of you to say. I feel like so many people are like. Oh, you gave up? You gave up on your art career? That's why you left. Oh, jeez. <laughs> and I'm like, no, actually, I think the work that I'm making now is better than what I was making in New York. I think you have to follow the work. You have that's to follow such, the paintings. Yeah, that's such a trope of like, like an old, outdated. I think so, too. It's you also know, along the same lines of like, oh, you had a child, you're a mom now. Oh, you can't be a painter. It's like uh, this, this baggage from the 50s. Yeah, that's like old. I remember when I was yeah. in Skowhegan, the, Tom Friedman was one of the you know, residents. Mm -hmm. And, uh, we talked and he was, you know, he lived in like rural Massachusetts in the yeah. middle of nowhere. And I just thought that was yeah. so badass that he was like, yeah. I'm just... I mean, Patty Smith left. She moved to Detroit. Yeah. Georgia O'Keefe left Agnes Martin. There's plenty of people who made great work outside of New York. So. You know what it is? How dare you have quality of life? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> jealousy how yeah. dare you have a blackberry bush and an apple tree right and still want to yeah. show work you and still <laughs> get to show it that's right that's right but you know new york definitely has that um it does feel like the center of the world just because of the diversity and also the um the way that everyone's piled on top of each other yeah the density the is yeah the density is what allows for collaboration yeah um, and growth and just incredible things happening. I really miss that. I miss that part of it a lot. Yeah. But I think it's, it's mitigated somewhat by the internet, you know, because I know it's not the same. I think that's true. I there think is a that's connection, true. You know? There is a connection. There is a connection. I think that's true. Yeah. Thank God. 
Like I just talked to you for an hour and I don't feel like I talked to a bot. Like I feel like I know you (laughs) now and we have a good rapport and (laughs) like when I see your work, I'm going to be like, oh, it's Kimmy's work, you know, like it's not fake. It's just over, you know, the screen. It's over screen. Yeah. It's true. Yeah. The internet has really, it's a game changer. And I've been able to, like, I've been teaching this whole time with NYC Crit Club. Yeah which has been incredible because I've kept a connection to a lot of New York based artists, but also like now because it's over zoom, there's students from all over the country that are in the class with us. So it's, I, I, I feel like it's expanded. My world has actually expanded rather than shrunk down. Definitely. Well, I mean, and you know, I was out of habit and because I do like connecting with people, I was doing all these podcasts pretty much face to face, almost all of them. And oh, I didn't know they were all face to face. They used to be before oh, COVID. I had no idea. I think maybe 96, 97% <gasps> of them were tete a tete. I did but not know that. Yeah, I would go to the gallery or they That's would come so to my cool. studio. I would go to their studio. But And then whenever this happened, obviously that was not going to happen anymore. Right. But it's been great. I've been talking to people in Australia and London. That's and, right. You know, it's opened things up. And then I've found that a lot of people listening appreciate the fact that there's a lot of other people from different places. It's not like I was trying to be like, New York is better than anywhere else. I just like that connection face to face. Yeah, it was your community. It was your immediate community. Yeah. And now now the sense of, and the definition of community is broader, I think. Definitely. Which is really exciting. I For someone stuck in in Tennessee. Yeah. stuck yeah i got stuck here in my big huge place with like trees and like music and great food yeah 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 it sounds brutal come on down man come your your kid is gonna go to college in four years well you didn't have to bring that up (laughs) (laughs) actually that's probably a good thing actually He's already, I think, whispering about NYU or places in the city. Oh, like, really? Oh he wants to stay in the city. That's well, funny. when you grow up, I here. hope you're. I hope you're saving. Only uh, the most expensive school in the in the country. All right, this podcast is over. <laughs> Bumming me out. I've got I'm Kimmy inspired. Inspired. Um. So, what do you like? What can you share with people about? Like, where can they see your work? What's the best way for them to? Ooh, what well, do you got? if they going on if they, what do you got going on <laughs> if they live in san francisco or in the bay area i'm about to have a solo show opening may 12th nice. they could see the work in person there if they Mixed have media, internet like all sorts of yeah. stuff yeah well no it's going to be all these papyrus pieces nice. all these guys around the studio oh, cool um nice. and if they have internet they can go online <laughs> to my website <laughs> or they can follow me at Kimi, uh, Alchemy on Instagram. And then I have a book coming out, actually. Nice. Um, but not till 2022. So it'll be a limited edition run with Radius Books, um, which is very exciting. Is and it then just images have, or is it also writing? There's going to be an essay and uh, a artist interview between me and Fabian Lasser, nice. who's one of my favorite sculptors. And then hopefully I'll be having a solo show at Turn Gallery in New York uh, at some point. I don't know when. <laughs> Maybe later this year or early next year. Well, um, let's hope that's a, like an in-person we can meet yes, and see people. Yes, I will and... be there. I will be there for sure. I just, I, I've been double vaccinated, so I'm ready. I'm ready to travel. Feels good, right? The double vax club. Feels really good. The double vax club, yeah. 
Um, so yeah, hopefully San Francisco, I don't think I'll be able to go, but, uh, New York, I definitely will. Cool. And then I'm going to be in a group show upstate in September, but I don't have the details on the space yet. You got things coming up, but Instagram will tell people where you're going to be and what you're doing. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Cool. Well, thanks. It was awesome to connect. I'm glad thank we you, made it happen. Thank you, Brian. I know. So many scheduling conflicts. But thank you so much. This was wonderful. wonderful. Thank you. Sound and Vision is recorded, edited, and produced by myself, Brian Alfred. You can find out more about the podcast by going to soundandvisionpodcast.com and you can find images of the podcast at Sound and Vision Podcast on Instagram. Many thanks to Kimia for talking to me. And thank you to Lalaton for the intro outro music, Emily Burns for the graphic design for the Sound and Vision logo, and to Michael Lovett for his introduction. You can find out more about Michael's music by checking him out on Nazca Lines, on Instagram, and in the band Metronomy. Many thanks to Golden Artist Colors and to the New York Studio School and our new sponsor, Fulcrum Coffee Roasters. They gave me a bunch of coffee to try out, and as many of you know, I talk on here all the time about my love of coffee. Um, It's amazing. It's great stuff. Um, They'll ship it to you really quickly. um, There's such a variety of coffee. You should check out their website. It's fulcrumcoffee.com. And uh, trust me, it's great stuff, so check them out. Many thanks to them for their sponsorship of the podcast. Uh, If you can, go to iTunes, leave a rating and review for the podcast. It really helps. And uh, maybe share it with a friend. Tell someone else about it. Many more good podcasts coming up soon, so please stay tuned every Thursday, 5 a.m.